0: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Carla Hayden about the importance of representation for young readers. Dr. Hayden knows a thing or two about the pivotal role that books play in children's lives. She began her career as a children's librarian in Chicago. She is the first woman and first African-American to serve as the Librarian of Congress. Fun fact, the Library of Congress is the world's largest library. Dr. Hayden has made the library a more welcoming place For children and more accessible electronically to educators around the country. Here's Dr. Hayden. Hi, Dr. Hayden. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so glad to be able to be with you. We're delighted to be talking with you. And first, before I ask about your role sharing stories, could you tell us your story?
1: My story involves books and reading from the very start. I am the child of two classically trained musicians who would have me under a grand piano while they practiced. My dad uh, played violin, my mother piano, and while they were practicing and I would be under the piano with a lot of books and some toys. So it was the start of me hearing music associated with words, actually.
0: When was the first time you saw yourself in the pages of a book?
1: Oh, I remember it well. I can't remember the librarian who put a book called Bright April into my hands. I was about seven years old, and there was a, in Jamaica, Queens, and there was a branch library right across the street, a storefront, from the PS96 where I was going to school, and I went to that library every day after school. And one day, a librarian put a book in my hand that just spoke to me in a way that the other books hadn't at the time, because it was the story of a eight-year-old little brown girl, just like me, who was a brownie, and she had two pigtails, and I just love that book so much. In fact, that's how I found out about Library Finds because I checked it out over and over and over again. But it was the first time that I could see myself reflected in something that was so important to me, uh, a book, and it meant a lot.
0: That's so neat. You grew up in New York City, right? Is this in Queens? I spent quite a bit of time in New York City in Queens,
1: the suburb of Queens, but my foundation and where I went every summer and holidays was in Illinois.
0: Now, tell us your road to becoming a librarian. When did you know you wanted to be a librarian, and how did you rise to the top?
1: (laughs) Well, I knew, I, I called myself an accidental librarian. I didn't know that I wanted to be a librarian until I was placed with a young person who was going to graduate library school in Chicago, and it was a storefront library. I was thinking about, after I graduated from college, if I was going to go to law school or what I was going to do, and I needed employment. So (laughs) um, this, but being exposed to what library school meant and how libraries were put together and then working with young people like the person I was when I got Bright April really showed me an occupation that could bring together so many things in my life.
0: Speaking of Bright April, why is it so important that all children see themselves in the pages of a book? Why does representation matter so much?
1: We tell young people that reading is the key to just about everything, and that books are important and they can open up the world to you. Books are windows, we say that all the time, into the world. You could travel anywhere, you can learn about anything. And if you, though, don't see someone that looks like you or that has any experiences like your own in this super important thing (laughs) that you've been told that might mean that you're not important and young people internalize that in a way that I don't know if we realize and so to have books be a mirror as well as a window is what is I think one of the keys to opening up what reading can really mean on a personal level to young people.
0: It's fair to say that the library has an impressive collection of the country's oldest children's books, right?
1: And also the manuscripts and the drafts of some of the oldest children's books, as well as some that your listeners might relate to, Ferdinand the Bull. (laughs) <laughs> and we have the drawings for that. And so when you think about how important children's literature has been over the decades, to be able to then have uh, the authors that are so familiar, Dave Pelkey and all of those authors that are contemporary now being represented mean so much.
0: I imagine that you see some pretty stark differences between the earliest children's books and the ones that are published today.
1: Well, that, I think, is reflected in all of publishing and the idea that we need to have many more voices and to represent many different situations in life has been a steady theme in children's literature and young adult literature in particular has been uh, very, I think, involved with making sure that when the young people are almost the most vulnerable in those teen years, those are confusing years, if you recall. <laughs> and uh, to, to make sure that we represent uh, some of the issues and concerns of young people that they can read about and relate to, I think, is one of the biggest changes that we've seen.
0: I have to say, I forgot a little bit what it's like to be a teen, but I read a young adult book over the weekend, and it brought it all back to me.
1: <laughs> so. Yes, it does. And remember <laughs> books like *Harriet the Spy*, and, yes. and and even when you think about that, was Judy Bloom and those mm-hmm. books and authors and what when they started bringing the realism into literature for young people.
0: Interesting. What role do you see the Library of Congress playing in the twenty first century? with all of our technology and all of the changes, what does the library bring to ordinary Americans, not just lawmakers?
1: Well, the Library of Congress, of course, uh, supports and is the research arm for Congress. And that's one of our primary roles. And also, it provides the backbone of the cultural and educational structure for the country as well. And so you will have the world's largest collection, let's say, of comic books, the largest collection of religious texts. So the Library of Congress collects and preserves materials for everyone to use, as well as tries to stimulate future creativity. And that's where we're really putting a lot of emphasis with exhibits like the Rosa Parks exhibit.
0: Yes, there's an amazing Rosa Parks exhibit at the Library of Congress right now. What role does the library play in preserving documents that give us a more nuanced understanding of American history?
1: Well, the Library of Congress, of course, when I mentioned it's the backbone. It, it collects uh, materials from the 23 presidents from George Washington to Calvin Coolidge, 36 Supreme Court justices, and as well as literary figures, Ralph Ellison, and people who are well known in general history of uh, women's suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and recently was the recipient of a collection in her own words is what the exhibit is called, of the writings and the personal memorabilia of Rosa Parks, the civil rights icon. And for the first time, those writings that she expressed herself in uh, for all of her life, Are being made available to the public to see and we have digitized them as well so you don't have to be here in person and that's an important part of what we're doing too is we have these treasures we're also aware that everyone can't physically come and see them and so we're digitizing more and more so in the rosa parks collection you will see that she was not just a quiet seamstress that was tired one day and didn't want to get up on that bus, but she was an activist, very seasoned. She was uh, someone who was very aware of what her actions would mean, and she continued to be an activist throughout her life in a quiet way, but very uh, pointed. And she had a personal story that we are able to show that she had went through hardships personally, physically and emotionally and all types of ways for her stand with civil rights.
0: Do you see that kind of story being told more and more, let's say in classrooms where often we just get a gloss or the easiest facts that kids can comprehend. How do we incorporate these complex topics into the classroom? How can educators bring the richness and texture of stories like Rosa Parks into the classroom?
1: Well, the Library of Congress and other uh, educational institutions, uh, Sony and the National Archives, have programs. The Library of Congress, this program is teaching with primary resources, and that's uh, all online where we provide curricular assistance and we actually have teachers help us with this. We have um, teachers in residence that look at our materials, work with our librarians and curators to develop curriculum plans, to use original documents to tell historic stories, but also to give insight into historic figures. And so, for instance, there's a curricular uh, agenda for the Rosa Parks exhibit and to help young people think about the fact that these are humans, like them, Mm -hmm. making history and that they could make history, too, that these are not just Mm (laughs) superhumans. And sometimes that's how we portray historic figures, that they were somehow almost unattainable in terms of what they did and how they over... We never talk about that hardships sometimes that they had to overcome and the doubts that they had about their role. So it's important, I think, for young people to, to get a fuller insight into these historic events and also the people who made them.
0: That certainly speaks to the importance of libraries. I wondered if you had any advice or words of encouragement for librarians who may be listening. I mean, their work is so crucial and yet often unheralded.
1: As well as teachers. Correct. (laughs) Teachers and librarians and school media specialists are all the, really, they provide the fabric and the support and the infrastructure for the young people that are trying to learn and their caregivers. And so with reaching out and also I think, Not just finding out what the resources are of institutions like the Library of Congress of Smithsonian and things like that, but also letting us know what their needs are. I had a fortunate encounter with a school media specialist who, on finding that I was uh, with the Library of Congress, just gently mentioned to me that uh, maybe our website could be a little simpler (laughs) (laughs) because uh, working educators and librarians don't have a lot of time to go through complicated websites and that everyone doesn't have a, a color printer at home. Uh, These practical aspects of how we can be even more useful to uh, people that are challenged in so many ways, and they have lives of their own too. So, uh, if please give input to us, and we we really appreciate it.
0: Okay, so you've thrown down the gauntlet. Getting back to. Getting back to Black History, we know it's Black History Month, but there's certainly plenty that we don't know beyond the familiar stories, let's say, of a Rosa Parks and a Martin Luther King. I wondered, in helping our listeners see how many stories are there that have been untold, I wondered if there are any hidden histories that you would be able to share with us and our listeners as we reflect upon the month and the rich history. Well,
1: because I'm working with the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress, people can use our website, Uh, loc.gov, short commercial, but (laughs) definitely there, to look at the list of oral histories. There are slave narratives. There are veterans' histories that are telling the stories of— the veterans of color and what they had to go through through different uh, times. And also they will be able to look at the aspects of African-American history that are not as well known. And I would encourage all educators and librarians to go on the websites of the Library of Congress, Smithsonian, and start uh, looking at some of the ways that we have presented history beyond the Frederick Douglases and the uh, Martin Luther Kings
0: and Rosa Parks. Oh my goodness, that's extremely helpful. Okay, to do a little pivot here, as you know, it's Scholastic's 100th anniversary this year in 2020. And I know what a big fan you are of Clifford, (laughs) just from following you on Twitter. I wondered if you could share some of your favorite Scholastic memories with us
1: one of my favorite and most recent memories and I have a big photo of my hug with Clifford. Uh, I'm not able to have a dog at this point in my life, but my favorite photo that's right behind me, and that helps center me in many ways, is getting a hug with a young man who's uh, about six. He's on the other side of Clifford, and we're both at the National uh, Book Festival. The annual is coming up on his 20th year, and Scholastic has been a partner every one of those years, and we hope to really feature uh, more and more of the scholastic authors because they're big hits there. <laughs> uh, but we are both hugging Clifford with big smiles, and Clifford is, is that type of character, and that's what some of the... Uh, oh, well, I also have Dogman right behind me, too. I have a <laughs> hole. <laughs> he's there, too. I didn't get to hug him, but I definitely <laughs> have that. But the fact that you are able to animate... These characters that are loved by children and adults of all backgrounds mean so much that they're approachable and they, uh, children feel that they know them. And I've this little boy he 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 took me over to Clifford and said, Aww. "Don't be afraid."
0: Oh I know the photo well. I, th- I think it became instantly iconic if such a thing is possible. <laughs>
1: Right, because uh, Clifford was a little bigger than the little stuff Donald I have. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my, you know, tried that old children's librarian, and he just said, no, don't be afraid. Mm, it took me over there.
0: That's absolutely lovely. I
1: just want to congratulate uh, Scholastic for being such a bastion of providing materials at a reasonable cost <laughs> for so many young people, and I laugh at that because they're are times when that can be very prohibitive uh, mm-hmm. for, to have young people be able to have books in their own home. They can always borrow books, but to be able to have books that they in those book fairs and to be able to purchase books and take them and have their own little libraries or to per- and be able to be free to write in a book mm-hmm. is a gift.
0: We so appreciate your taking the time.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: It's an honor to talk with you and wishing you continued success.
1: Thank you very much. Keep reading. You too.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much again to Dr. Hayden for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the Library of Congress and the Library's Rosa Parks exhibit, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads as we celebrate Scholastic's 100th anniversary. See you next time.